I made a point of saying the class starts at uh, 7, 8.45, and, and uh, not even the teacher was here at 8.45. So, what you get. I welcome everyone back uh, from Christmas break. I know it was good for our teachers to get a little bit of a break, but it's also very good to be back in the saddle this morning. Um, and this thing is rocking like crazy. Let me adjust this real quick. Um, I forgot to get everyone their paper. Why don't you do that? Um, do we have, um, is this your first time in our class? Yes. Okay, so let me just give a, a quick 10 second kind of uh, introduction to what we're doing. So in this Sunday school hours, starting in um, um, August, we have been going through what we call a catechetical theology. Um, and so this is basically going through the creed both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, we're kind of looking at them together. And we're seeking to answer the question, what do Christians believe? And of course, Christians believe a lot of things. What we're really interested in is, what are those core things that Christians believe? What is, what, what is the essence of the Christian faith that really the entire church universal holds in common? Now, for a good number of weeks, we've been in that part of the creed that central, that middle part, right, that is ranged underneath the Son, so the Creed is Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and within this central section of the Son, there is this story of Christ. We've been calling that the Gospel. It's the story of Jesus. And it's arranged in several major events. And these, each of these events are events which actually move forward the work of our salvation. It's not all just the cross, as central as that is, we are saved by each of the major events in this story of Christ. Um, and this morning we come to yet another of these events, only this one is not in the past. This one is not yet part of history. It's still in the future. But that does not mean that it is not part of the gospel. It is very much a part of the gospel. And I am speaking, of course, of Christ's second coming. The moment we use a term like the second coming, now, we immediately uh, forecast a, a major element of what we believe, right? That Jesus Christ comes to us not once, but twice. This is a mystery that in the Old Testament was hidden. The Old Testament prophets, they saw uh, elements of Christ's two comings, but they saw it sort of like this, where they could see elements of his first coming, like his crucifixion, and elements of his second coming, but they couldn't clearly distinguish between the two. And so it all appears like kind of one. But in the New Testament, this mystery is fully revealed. And Jesus himself teaches us that the prophesied coming of Messiah is not one coming, but actually two. Um, two advents, two epiphanies, that means appearings. The first, of course, happened... 2,000 years ago. We celebrated that two weeks ago. Um, and that first coming began the work of redemption. That started the accomplishment of our salvation, or what we call the economy. Remember that word? The economy of God's working in history to accomplish his purposes of salvation. But the second coming is something we're still waiting for. We're still looking forward to that, and we know that it will finish the economy. 
So the first begins the economy, and the second finishes it. The first starts the accomplishment of our salvation, and the second will complete it. Without this second coming, we would not be saved. It's part of saving us. We now live presently in this hour in the time between these two comings, these two advents. So let's go ahead and begin as we, uh, as we normally do by reading the creed and pay special attention to what it says about the future. So taking this front part of your outline, we'll read together starting with the bold print, which is the Apostles' Creed. And of course, uh, again, this is just the central section that, we've, that we're focusing on in these weeks. Who suffered under Pontius Pilate, dead and buried, descended to hell, and on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now the Nicene Creed, reading everything, but omitting the italics. Who was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered and was buried, and on the third day rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended to heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and thence he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And this time we'll go ahead and do our expansion, and as a reminder, what's below this is not creedal, that it is, it does not have authority, but these are as a composite of many phrases from other creeds of the early church, as well as its prayers. And so it is, uh, it is language that has been used uh, repeatedly and through the ages by Christians. Who when? Who when he had fulfilled all the economy according to his father's will, gave himself as a ransom to death that reigned over us, by which we were held, being sold under sin, and was willingly crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered in the flesh for us, died for us, and was buried. Through the cross he descended to Hades, the regions beneath, that he might fill all things, and carried out the economy there, whom the gatekeepers of hell saw and shuddered. He dissolved the power of death, trampled hell, broke the chains of the devil, opened the door of life, and set the captives free from suffering and death. And on the third day after his suffering, rose again from the dead according to the scriptures, that he might make a way of resurrection from the dead for all flesh, and consorted with the disciples and fulfilled all the economy. And when forty days were fulfilled, ascended, taken up into heaven in the same body, and sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, God the Father Almighty. He appointed a day in which he will come again with his holy angels from the heavens in the same body at the end of the age, on the last day of the resurrection, with the terrifying glory of his Father and with great power to judge the living and the dead with righteousness, to render to each according to his works whether good or bad, who abides for endless ages, and whose kingdom will have no end. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Can you remind us the economy?
Yes, so economy is the way in which God enters into history and interacts with history so as to bring about our salvation, our redemption. And and it's primarily focused on uh, those events starting with the incarnation and ending with, uh, well, our our material today. Now, when we talk about the end times, people get all excited. Um, And to some degree they should, although that excitement often spills in unhealthy kinds of ways. Um, And there are a lot of different ideas as to what's going to happen. Who is Antichrist going to be? How long will the tribulation be? Will there be a millennium or not? Um, We're not interested in those kinds of things. Um, The the church fathers themselves were not um, all agreed on those kinds of details. There wasn't a unified understanding of the exact order in which things would happen and exactly which passages meant what. Um, This simply wasn't a major part of the tradition that they were passing down. Um, The scripture gives us a lot of material. A lot. In fact, I was going to bring it. But I've got a stack of pages this thick, single-space, eight-point font of text from the Bible that talk about the future. It's, in, it's insane how much material is in our Bibles about what is still future. But the problem is, is that a lot of it is symbolic. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And it's given in prophetic visions that, that are visionary, like all things prophetic tend to be. They're rarely narrated literally. And they're rarely in strict chronological order. And if they were, we would never have no idea of knowing that in the first place. It's more like a collage of images. And those images are hard to put together from one text to another. I would think of it like looking through a kaleidoscope. Remember that toy, kid's toy? You see all these images and crazy patterns. So you can think of the prophets looking at the future through one of those things. Right? Hard to put it all together. And yet... Despite that, there are some central facts that emerge clearly as indisputable. That's what we want to focus our attention on, and that's what the creed draws our attention to. And the two major facts are the fact that the Lord Jesus will return from heaven to us. And secondly, the fact that he will judge the living and the dead and render to each according to their works. These two facts are not the kinds of peripheral, secondary, or tertiary things like who's the Antichrist and how long the tribulation, all those kinds of things. No. These two facts are core, central dogmas of the Christian faith. These are emphasized again and again in the Old Testament and New Testament scripture. You find them in every ancient creed, and there were quite a few creeds, Every one of them talk about the second coming and judgment. You find them in the most ancient and widespread of the church's liturgies. So the church's prayer life repeatedly makes mention of these things that we hope for and look forward to. Very simply put, as Christians, we believe that the crucified one not only rose again and ascended to heaven, and is seated at God's right hand in power, but that he will return on the clouds in a full display of that power, and we will see him with our own eyes. In fact, the whole world will see him. When he comes, he will right every wrong. He will purge every evil, avenge every injustice, and repay in full every deed 
whether good or bad, and he will make all things new. Everything that is wrong with the world, when he comes again, he will put right. This is our firm faith as Christians. This is the faith of the apostles, the faith of the martyrs in which they died, the very witness, the unwavering faith of the God's church in every branch throughout all the ages. Which means that there is, in fact, an answer to the injustice that's in the world that we see every day. There is an answer to life's perennial question, that question we've been asking for millennia. Why do the righteous so often suffer and the evil so often prosper? Or why do bad things happen to good people? Right? You hear that all the time. We're going to keep hearing that until the end. Or how can a good God allow something so horrible to happen? Now, the Christian won't flippantly answer these questions because we respect the pain that people experience in the process. But the Christian knows the answer. History has an end. It doesn't continue on forever and ever, the same old, without resolution. When the Son of God returns to judge the living and the dead, he comes to close the chapter of this present world, history as we now know it, before beginning a new one that is everlasting. And when that happens, we will fully witness a satisfying and complete and final resolution to all these sorts of questions. All our doubts, our objections, our philosophies, our laments, the kinds you find in the Psalms, all our yearnings for the way things should be but aren't, they will all be put to rest forever with a single resounding amen upon the lips of all creatures. And in that day, there will be no objections at all to how God has seen fit to arrange his universe or govern its history. The rightness and the wisdom of his ways will astonish us. That's what we await. That's, what we, that's why we want him to come soon. We're longing for that day. But we don't know when that's going to happen. And if anyone tells you they do, that they've done their calculations and figured it out, don't listen to them. I speak from experience. There's somebody actually in my family who does this. Jesus told us repeatedly, no man knows. And by saying the hour and the day, he didn't mean, well, you could figure out the year or the season. He means no man knows. <laughs> and he even said that he himself didn't know. Of course, theologians have a, hard, have a hard time with that. How, how can he not know he's God? Well, insofar as he is man, in his humanity, even he doesn't know. But he says the Father does. The Father knows. He's got a day and an hour already picked out. There is a red circle on a day on the divine calendar, and it's not going to change. And it's always been picked out from the beginning. But God has strictly withheld that knowledge from us. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. Sometimes Jesus, it's bad when sometimes. I want it to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jesus tells us why it's actually a very good thing. He says, if you knew that a thief was going to come sometime during the night, and you knew exactly when, he's going to come at 2.17 in the morning. And you knew that with certainty. Well, until it gets to be around 2 o'clock, you know, the time is getting close, 
there'd be no reason to really make sure you're ready. You can kind of take it easy, do what you can, watch your movie, do whatever you're going to do, knowing that setting the alarm at 2 a.m., get up, then you can load your gun and get ready, right? <laughs> I'm obviously embellishing. What if you have Well, then you have, to, then you have a problem. <laughs> So certainty actually produces and breeds a certain kind of laxness. But what if you, although you knew he would come sometime during the night, but you had no idea when? It could be at any hour. Well, then you can't afford to be unprepared at any moment. You've got to be ready at all times. Uncertainty puts us ever on guard. And that's what God wants from his church. He wants his church to be always watching. It's the major theme in Jesus' teaching. Always prepared to face him, or as one father put it elegantly, always fearing that for which she daily hopes. Christ wants us to stay alert, to never fall asleep spiritually, to never let the oil run out, to not get lax or drowsy in our pursuit of holiness. So to keep us on our toes and in earnest, he tells us he's returning. In fact, he says it repeatedly and emphatically. But he won't tell us when. It will happen when the Father wills it happen. Can you distinguish that kind of waiting, watching, vigilance from anxiety? Well, now you're throwing a psychological thing at me. So the church watches in hope. Uh, an expectancy with eagerness and, 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 and an expectation of great joy. It's not something we dread. Um, and yet, Jesus teaches with the express purpose of instilling a certain amount of anxiety in those who uh, are not committed enough to be prepared. So we don't want to eliminate entirely the sense of anxiety. I think that Jesus intends there to be some anxiety. And I'm actually going to get to that interesting tension uh, here in a minute because that's very important. And when it does happen, when Jesus does come, it's not going to be gradual. It's not going to be something that we have, we, we can see the signs of and way off and have plenty of time to get our act together. Christ says that it's going to come when we're not expecting. And he says that many will not be prepared when it does happen. And he's talking about the church, by the way. Knowing this, Jesus warned the disciples, and through the disciples he warns us again and again and again, especially in his parables, be ready. Be ready. Be watchful. Be alert. Be prepared. Now, he doesn't mean by that, watch the newspapers. Make sure you don't miss anything happening in the Middle East and figure out where that is in the, in the prophetic. Forget all that. Put all that aside. What he means is live each day as if it were our last. In love and obedience and holiness, we are to always be prepared to give an account for our actions and our lives and our choices at his appearing. So we don't know when this will happen, and it's a good thing. However, there is a notion out there today that this is so immediate or imminent is the word that's used, that it could happen within the next couple seconds as I'm speaking right now. I don't think that's actually biblical. There is something that has to happen first. Many interpreters of scripture, I would think, I think actually most, but by no means all, 
and understood the Bible to teach that Christ's return will take place in the midst of a major global crisis. This is called, in the words of Jesus, Great Tribulation, a time of fierce persecution of the church at the hand of one whom we call Antichrist. And again, I'm getting now into the secondary stuff about which there are a variety of opinions. The majority of the church uh, still understands Antichrist to be a figure, a personal figure, and still one to come. It will also be a time of widespread apostasy or falling away, as Christians everywhere find that it's too costly to continue being faithful to Jesus, to continue confessing Christ. And many, perhaps most, especially if you think of there being a billion plus professing Christians in the world, most may, in fact, defect to the other side in order to save their lives. Now, if this is true, if this reading, and again, there are other readings, but if this reading of the Bible is true, then the church at the time of Christ's return will be a suffering church and in dire need of the Lord's intervention. When the Lord comes, it will be to rescue his church from extinction and deliver her from the crisis threatening to swallow her up. He will come as the church's deliverer, as her savior. He will literally snatch her from destruction and avenge the blood of the martyrs upon their persecutors together with the apostates who defected, who did not remain true to him. Now, this situation I've described may not describe our, it doesn't describe our experience now. Okay? At least not around here. But we, may, we must not assume that that means that Christ isn't coming back anytime soon. That we have time to put off holiness, to put off repentance and a change of life and bearing spiritual fruit. We can do that later. The tribulation that we expect does in fact describe what parts of the church are experiencing, at least sporadically, such as in Iraq and Syria, even today. And if the devil is fully unleashed, as many expect he will be at the end, this crisis could develop on a global level very, very quickly. Certainly in our lifetimes, perhaps in a space of a decade or less. So we not, must not assume that because we do not see this great tribulation uh, on the horizon yet, that therefore this is something for centuries in the future. We must be ready in every generation, and we must do so because when this does develop, when this, these storm clouds do arrive, there won't be time for us to change our ways. There won't be time for us to correct our life and change our heart because in those days it will be more difficult to be a faithful Christian. It won't be easier. If we're riding the fence with half-committed hearts before that time arrives, then when that time comes, we will almost certainly be among those who fall away. But for those who love the Lord with all their heart, when this time comes, our job is to resist to the utter end any and every temptation to be disloyal to our Lord Jesus. We must remember his words. It helps to remember the creed. Remember what we most firmly believe, that no matter how hard it gets, it is all just as he said it would be. And the very suffering that we're in is the sign itself, a red, flashing, unmistakable sign that his coming is surely at hand. This is what the book of Revelation calls the patience and faith of the saints. Knowing that he will shortly come, 
we must remain faithful to him. Stand firm in the faith. Endure to the end in your baptismal vows. And if you do, then his coming will be your salvation and your reward. All right, so let's talk just very quickly about what's going to actually happen when he shows up. And of course, again, we're, we're cobbling this together from Scripture as best we can, giving you the best I can do on this. First, before he is seen, before he appears, uh, it seems that his passage into our realms will be accompanied by convulsions in the cosmic realm, so in the skies. When he descended to earth the first time, he veiled his deity, and he came quietly into the womb of the Virgin Mary. Creation was seemingly unaware of what had just happened. But when he descends a second time, there will be no veil. The Son of Man comes in the fullness of his Father's glory. And as he approaches, the sun will go dark. Quite a few passages repeat this idea over and over again. The sun will be extinguished, will be put out. It will be ashamed and humbled in the presence of a vastly greater light. The moon will blush, changing to the color of dark blood. The stars of heaven will be shaken and move out of their place. Jesus says they will drop from the sky like ripe figs from a tree. They will flee until not a single star remains. Which means that all the lights of heaven, sun, moon, stars, they're all extinguished. And darkness will cover the earth. For how long? We don't know. Maybe it's just moments. Maybe it's hours, maybe even days. You can imagine what that will be like for the people on earth. I wonder if he'll also zap our electrical grid so we'll get the real <laughs> impact of it all. But then in the midst of darkness, a sign will appear in the heavens. The sign of the Son of Man. Now the early church, when they heard this, they said, that's got to be the cross. Maybe it is. But certainly our, our fathers thought so. A sign that when we see it, will thrill the heart of the faithful and will cause the nations to mourn as they realize the truth of who they were persecuting. And then the Bible tells us after this sign, the heavens will open and the darkness will be pierced by a blazing light of glory and Jesus of Nazareth will appear in the clouds, not standing, but seated on the throne at the right hand of the power of God, surrounded by his angels. Now, you've heard that imagery before in this class, right? That's the imagery in which he now, at this very moment, exists in the heavens of heavens. Which is to say that the very throne room of heaven, as it now is, but we can't see, will descend with him and breach into our world so that we can see it. And with him, there will be a full array of angelic creatures in all of their ranks. Cherubim, seraphim, archangels, powers, dominions, thrones, etc. They will all be present in their full number. The book of Jude says 10,000. The Jewish source he was quoting says 10 million. The book of Revelation says 10,000 times 10,000. That would be 100 million. Of course, the point is not the number, right? The point is that it's beyond counting. This is the heavenly army in full battle array with Christ the King leading the army at the front. And this is actually the picture 
that the church has historically in mind when she sings the Sanctus. This is something I just learned this past month in some research I was doing for a class. That when we sing holy, holy, holy God of power and might, first of all, power and might, that's kind of a very loose modern translation. The word is the Hebrew word sabaot, and the church, both Greek and Latin, actually use the Hebrew word in their liturgy, sabaot, meaning hosts or armies. When we sing the Sanctus, we are hymning the one sitting on the throne leading the angelic armies. And it didn't take long. In fact, there is a, century, a second or third century uh, Eucharistic prayer from Egypt where they immediately tie the Sanctus to Christ's second coming. That's what they understood the Sanctus to be referring to. So we invoke this image of Christ's glorious coming at the end of the age every time we celebrate the Eucharist. This is a very common artistic motif that many cathedrals and chapels who have the money to do this sort of thing will commission to be painted on the ceilings of their sanctuaries. So that when we're celebrating the Eucharist, we literally see the scene that the liturgy invokes depict visually before our eyes above the altar. I wonder what this would do to our experience of worship. This appearance, however, will not be a vision. This is not a prophetic vision. This is not a spiritual sight. This is a physical, bodily presence. And by some miracle, and there will be plenty of the miraculous occurring around this, by some miracle, the whole world, all around the globe, will be able to see this all at once. Now, this bodily presence will not be a different body, nor will it be unrecognizable. The very same body in which he was crucified and buried and risen and ascended in that same body, he will come again. And this was a major point of emphasis amongst the fathers. Every eye will see him, and they will see the scars on his hands and his feet. And they will recognize him as the one that the world crucified, but who was alive. And they will realize in that moment that the very one who was unjustly <coughs> judged by men is now the universal judge of all men. And he's no longer going to come rejected and despised. He comes, says the creed, with glory. His body is now vested with a glory that we can't describe. First of all, he's got a, a renewed humanity, already in its resurrection glory, one with, that we too will one day have. That's for another lesson. But it's also radiant with the divine glory of the Word, conjoined inseparably to it in the unity of his person. That's the way the theologians like to talk. The way Jesus likes to put it is, he's going to come in the fullness of his Father's glory. The fullness of his Father's glory. Bodily. And on top of that, he'll be surrounded by the glory of the holy angels in their innumerable host. And if you put all this together, you can imagine it will be an awesome and shocking and earth-shaking sight. But glory is more than just light very closely connected to life, but it's more than just life. It's also power and conquest. And this is where we need to set aside all those warm, fuzzy, comfortable, harmless images we picked up from years in Sunday school, most of which are taken from his first coming. In his first advent, he came as a helpless babe who would grow to walk humbly amongst men and to teach them, and he would gather no army and lift a hand against no man. But that was his first coming. In his second advent, it could not be more different. 
This time he comes assuming the full royal posture of battle and of judgment. The book of Revelation pulls no punches. It doesn't water this imagery down. Nor do the Psalms and the Old Testament prophets, which both speak mysteriously of the same event. The language found in our Bibles about this is shockingly and intentionally violent and disturbing. We hear of his eyes a flame of fire. We hear of his robe being dipped in the blood of his enemies, of a sharp sword proceeding from his mouth. The prophets speak of the Lord mustering his army for battle. They, they speak of fire and of fury and of whirlwind and of tempest and a thunderous roar and rays of light flashing from his hand, the lightning his arrows and spear, who rides the dark clouds as his chariot, who descends in anger with fire from his mouth and smoke from his nostrils. This imagery is from our Bibles. Accompanied by the shout of the angels and the blast of the trumpet of war. Now, certainly, some of us at some level, at some extent, right now are saying, wait, 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 wait. I thought the Christian religion was a religion of light and peace and love and forgiveness. Is anyone thinking that? You're right. It is. But there is no love for his sheep without wrath upon their enemies. There is no salvation for his children without the destruction and removal of all that is evil from their world. It is precisely his love for his church that fuels the anger that he will display when he comes to rescue her. Our faith is not so reductionistic or simple or one-sided. There is a depth, there is a complexity to God's character that combines Fury and tenderness, vengeance and forgiveness, slaying and healing. We must never flatten God out to a one-dimensional being. Some, uh, we, fa we find many, in fact, descriptions of God coming in divine anger to judge his enemies. We call these theophanies. That's just Greek for the appearance of God. Some of these depict the God's descent upon Mount Sinai to give the law. Some, his descent for the Passover to destroy Egypt. Some, retribution against Israel's later enemies. But all of these Old Testament theophanies or appearances of God find their final culmination, their antitype, their fulfillment, their ultimate expression in Christ's second coming. That's where it's all going to be summed up. We are forbidden to avenge wrongs. We're forbidden. We're supposed to turn the other cheek, not to strike back. But you know why? It's because God says that vengeance is mine. I will repay. It is his prerogative, not ours. But he's delegated that prerogative to his son. As a reward for his obedience and the unjust death in which that obedience uh, culminated, the Father has bestowed the right of divine vengeance, which is his alone, upon Jesus. It is he, our precious Jesus, who will personally tread the wine press, wine press of the wrath of God on his Father's behalf. 
This coming judge and warrior king who, according to scripture, rides the clouds in a fiery blaze of anger against his enemies is the same person in the same body who lay in that manger on that quiet Christmas night. It is one and the same Christ. The tender child who comes in mercy and the judge from whom the heavens scatter and the nations flee are one and the same Lord whom we worship. And again, I just want to press this in on you. This is, there is a complexity, a richness, and a depth to our faith that defies simplification in Jesus' posture or presentation to us. We must always hold this intention. It's not just the harmless, warm, fuzzy Jesus we learned in Sunday school. In fact, that's actually a mischaracterization even of his first coming. If you actually read the things he had to say, especially to the Pharisees. We live in the overlapping space between the two poles of his two comings, his two epiphanies, and the character of these two comings are radically, radically different. And even in this, Jesus reveals the following. He's always doing that. He's always revealing the Father to us. The God that we fear is the God that we love. The God that we love is the God that we fear. There's no contradiction here. That is Christianity. It gives a depth to our faith and a richness and a meaningfulness that it would not otherwise have if we just flattened it out, just one side of the coin. Lastly, what does he come to do? Well, he comes to do primarily two things. Well, three things. We're going to talk about judgment next week. This week, two things. He comes to rescue his people and destroy their enemies. Simple. It's actually the theme of quite a few movies, isn't it? It's a very simple, basic theme. The first effect of his appearance is that the mighty of the earth will be humbled. The proud will be brought down. Everything that is exalted and lifted up will be laid low. We're told, first of all, that the earth itself, the physical material earth, will convulse at his presence and be shaken mightily. The rocks will split. The proud mountains and all of their glory will flee and the islands will move from their places. The waves of the sea will shudder in fear at the presence of its maker. The nations, like the devil who taught them, are proud and haughty. We have been saying as a race, for 6,000 years at least, I will be like God. I will be my own master. I will determine my 